0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabaniss. Last week, we looked at the event of Pentecost, And uh, this is where the Holy Spirit was poured out uh, upon the church in a powerful way. There were 120 followers of Jesus. They're praying. And um, all of a sudden, there is this sort of audiovisual experience. They hear a rushing wind. So it's like they hear you're praying, and all of a sudden you hear a windstorm or something. They hear this rushing wind. And then they see tongues of fire in the room. So think tongue of fire like a flame. So flames of fire settle on each of the believers Uh, This is just extraordinary. And then they do something that was really quite unprecedented. They begin to speak in languages that they do not know, and they are proclaiming, the mighty acts of God. Well, how do we know that they were proclaiming the mighty acts of God if they're speaking a language they don't know? Well, because Pentecost is this international gathering of Jews. And so there's people from all these nations. Chapter 2 gives us the list of nations they came from. And this is such a kind of commotion, they a big crowd gathers and they say, we're hearing our languages from our native land. And these people don't know those languages. These are simple people Galileans kind of unsophisticated folk, and they are speaking all these foreign languages and proclaiming the acts of God. And we saw last week that the reason that's happening is because God is, uh, the gospel is going forth and he's demonstrating that the gospel is for the world, and the world is gathered there and hears and responds to the gospel. Um, And the response of the people is twofold. Some people are amazed and say, this is incredible, we're hearing all this about God in our own language. Some people are amazed, other people are amused. They mock them as these people are drunk. You know, these are just drunk people. Uh, and so anyway, that was kind of the response. Then what happens is what we're about to read now is Peter stands up and he preaches the first... We could say Christian sermon, the first sermon after Jesus has ascended back to heaven. So, after Jesus is gone and the Spirit is poured out, this is the first sermon uh, ever preached. Uh, it goes from verses 14 in chapter 2 to verses 41. We're going to read those in three different sections. Um, if we read it straight through, it'd take like three minutes. Uh, so we know that he said more than this because uh, in verse 40 it says that with uh, many other words he bore witness. So there's these words, there's this sermon. It's pretty amazing. If it was just this, he spoke three minutes and 3,000 people came to Christ. So you may be thinking, hey, why don't we try that? And uh, you talk long, so why don't we go to the three-minute sermon and see what happens? Maybe God would do the same. So anyway, we're going to start by looking at verses 14 through 21, uh, and then we'll work our way through. So let's uh, please listen to this, uh, God's holy word to us. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood therefore the day of the lord before the day of the lord comes the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the lord shall be saved we'll go that far everyone who calls upon the name of the lord shall be saved so this first section is about the work of the spirit it's about what happens when the holy spirit comes and it's about the the promise that the Spirit would come. Peter, what's amazing is that Peter is the one who stands up and has chosen to give this speech because 50 days before this, Peter had been cowering in fear. 50 days before this, when Jesus was arrested, Peter was so afraid that he denied that he even knew Jesus. When asked if he knew Jesus, he said no and cursed. And here's this same timid Je- uh, Peter who's Afraid to identify with Jesus, that now has been filled with the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the chapter we saw. And now he stands up and he lifts his voice with no fear. We're gonna see as we work our way through this, there's no fear. He's he's preaching boldly to them. This is the the power of what happens when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of somebody's heart. And Peter stands up and he says, These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only 9 a.m., nobody's been drinking. That's not what's going on. But let me tell you what's going on. What you see in front of you, which I described in the introduction, what you see in front of you is what Joel told us would happen many, many years ago. Joel was an Old Testament prophet, and he said, this is what Joel says. And verses 17 through 21 are a quotation of what Joel said. Now, here's what was going on in Joel's day. In his day, um, the people of God had, had fallen away from God, and there was a locust plague that came in. And when locusts come in, it doesn't just mean, oh, it's too bad, it's kind of a nuisance, it's like mosquito season or something. No, locusts eat your crops and then you have a famine. So it's a very serious judgment upon the people of God. And Joel comes to them and he says this, you think this is bad? you should see the day of the Lord. When the Lord returns in judgment, it's going to be much worse than this. So, Israel, you need to repent. Everybody turn back to God because the Lord will come one day, will return, and and this locust thing is, is, uh, in essence, nothing compared to that. Now, here's what will happen before He returns. He will pour out His Spirit on all flesh, He says, And um, there'll be cosmic signs, signs in the skies above. In verse 21, in that day, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So he says there's coming a day uh, when God's Spirit's going to be among us. And there's coming a day when anyone, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter, who calls out to God will be saved. So repent now uh, in view of that day. That's basically what he says, Uh, And verse 17, the first part of that quote from Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. You ever hear anybody say, you think this is the last days? The answer to that question is yes, because Peter says this today, Pentecost, verse 16, this is what was spoken by Joel, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So, the last days, if you look at the whole story of the Bible, the last days are the days between Pentecost and the return of Jesus, the pouring out of the spirit and the return of Jesus. So, we are in absolutely the last days and have been for the last two millennia. Now, there may be the last of the last days, there may be things that happen at the very end, like these various signs in the skies, um, you know, uh, moon turns to blood, the sun turns to darkness, verse 20, uh, wonders in the heavens below. Some, some of that may be things that happen at the end of the last days or something like that, but clearly the age of the Spirit, that's the world we live in today. And it's inaugurated at Pentecost, this new era The the age of the Spirit, that's the the world that we live in. Uh, And he says, when that happens, Pentecost, from then on, he will pour out his Spirit on sons and daughters who will prophesy. Sons and daughters will prophesy, he says. Now, under the new covenant, when the Spirit is poured out, there seems to be an an elevation um, of ministry of women, for instance. In the Old Testament, women... Uh, led and and were involved in any number of ways, but here he says women are going to prophesy. There, this is going to be the power of the Spirit's going to do something new in the church. Men and women are going to prophesy. Uh, he's probably referring. He says this is that people are going to prophesy. He's probably saying that the speech in other languages which declared. Um, the mighty works of God, what just happened at the beginning of the chapter, this is prophetic speech. Now, it's referred to speaking in tongues in chapter 2, but it's of a prophetic nature. It is, it is a sense of God inspiring, anointing, empowering people to speak, um, in that case in other languages. But that's probably what's going on here. He's referring to that as prophetic speech. Uh, He goes on to say that not only, uh, well, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. So, when the Spirit's poured out, young people will be affected and older people will be affected. Verse 18, even on male servants and female servants, when the Spirit is poured out, it's not just going to be people of means or educated people. Slaves will receive the Spirit and they will prophesy as well, is what he says here. So, when the Spirit is poured out, it's this great equalizer in the body of Christ Men and women will both be empowered by the Spirit. Young and old will be guided and led by the Spirit, uh, he says here. And uh, not just for those of means, but servants as well. That servants will be lifted up and empowered by the Spirit with significant roles to be able to communicate what God has put on their hearts, prophetic words. So it's really a powerful, powerful explanation. The first thing Peter does is he explains the work of the Spirit. He's got to stand up and say, what's going on? Because everybody says, what is this? Some people say they're drunk. He explains, no, that's not the case. Then he he sort of changes and begins to talk about the work of Jesus. So he starts talking about what's happening here. And in verses 22 through 36, he talks about the work of Christ. Look at this. Men of Israel... that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So here he begins to talk about Jesus. I'm going to flesh this out a little bit in a minute, but I just want to make the point very clear to start with that when the Holy Spirit comes and Peter stands up to explain what's happening, he focuses intently on Jesus. He explains what's going on. Hey, this is on a timetable. Joel said this would happen. Need to let you know what's happening. But now that everybody knows what's happening, here's the message. The message is about Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes, and he always points to Jesus. And look what he tells us about Jesus, what Peter tells us about Jesus in this first sermon of the church. He tells us, first of all, about the life of Jesus. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. In your midst, as you yourselves know. So he's saying here... uh, God attested that Jesus was sent by him. Jesus was a man attested to you by God. So Jesus is both God and man. He's the God-man. And he says to you that God attested that he had sent Jesus because he he did wonders through him. He did signs. He did signs through him. And he did those signs in your midst. He did them through him in your midst. You yourselves know, he says at the end of the verse. So what he's saying here is Jesus did amazing things. He he healed the sick. He cast demons out of people. Uh, He produced food miraculously for the hungry. He raised the dead. Uh, He at one time spoke and made a storm stop. So Jesus did all of these amazing things, and he says those were all signs. You know them. Those were all signs that pointed to the fact that he was from God, you yourselves know this. I mean, he was only killed 50 days ago. So there are people in the audience here. We know 3,000 responded. So it must be bigger than that. Not everybody responded. So he's speaking to thousands. And surely in that crowd, there would have been people that had seen some of these works. And he's saying, those works you saw Jesus do, that was proof. His life was proof that God had sent him. So what's the work of Jesus? The life of Jesus. Number two, the death of Jesus. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands I uh, was killed by the hands of lawless men. So he's saying Jesus was given up, he was given over to death. Well, who gave Jesus over to death? He says God did. God delivered up according to his definite plan and foreknowledge. So, he's saying God the Father is responsible for Jesus' death because he, he planned this. It was according to his plan and foreknowledge. Now, when you see the word foreknowledge in the New Testament, it doesn't just mean to know ahead of time. It means more than that. It means to plan. It means to ordain from the past. And so, he says God planned for Jesus to die. God ordained. He foreknew he would die. And so, ultimately, God is responsible and you crucified him, you're responsible, you crucified him, and that was done by lawless men, Pilate and the Roman soldiers, these were the lawless ones that actually killed Jesus. So if we ask the question, who's responsible for Jesus' death, in the first sermon, Peter says, it's the Father who's responsible, and you're responsible, and the Romans are responsible, The reality is, throughout the New Testament, we read that Jesus died for our sins. And so we could fairly say, we're responsible. I don't know if you thought about that, but you were responsible for the death of Jesus because it was, even though you weren't there, because it was your sins that caused his death. This is an example, maybe the best in all the Bible, that shows how the sovereignty of God and the free will of man work together. Both are in the Bible, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. But the accent of the Bible is on the sovereignty of God. But they're both there, and this is a, a, this is a great picture of this. God planned and ordained for Jesus to die. God wanted his son to die. You opposed Jesus and wanted his son to die as well. You really did. You weren't just doing what God wanted. They really hated Jesus, and our sins are really opposed to Jesus. So the work of the Father through sinful people, they work together the sovereignty of God and the will of man together. Now notice here how Peter when he talks about this, he doesn't soft sell the gospel. He doesn't he doesn't preach well, he's not a real warm fuzzy when you read this. I mean, he says, "You crucified and killed Jesus." He's very much sort of in their face in a in a good way. I mean, there's likely members of this crowd that 50 days before had chanted You know, give us Barabbas, crucify Christ, crucify. There's likely people whose voices, you know, our voices weren't there literally, actually, um, but we are responsible. But their voices were, some of them were actually there yelling, crucify him. And and he says to them, you know, you are responsible. Uh, The Bible in the book of Acts throughout tells us that when the Holy Spirit came, he gave them boldness. And I thought about that how Peter's preaching boldly here and how we're called to preach boldly and testify and share our faith boldly. In our culture, it requires some degree of boldness to say that Jesus Christ died, that he's God, and that he rose from the dead. That requires some boldness. But to say you're guilty, you're a sinner, that requires real boldness. In our culture, the greatest boldness is not just telling the good news that Jesus died. The greatest boldness is in telling the bad news because we don't want to be told that we're wrong. And culturally, our our world is one which we don't think we're wrong. We think we're basically good people who occasionally make some mistakes. And if I do something you don't like, all that I'm really doing is just expressing who I am. But we don't have sin. We just express who we are. Do you know what happens when everybody expresses who they are, God ends up on a cross. That's what happens. Because who you are and who I am is fundamentally opposed to God. We don't want to do what God calls us to do. We want to do what we want to do. We reject him. We reject his law. And ultimately, it is our sin and our rejection that Jesus comes lovingly to die for. And so, it could be said to us too, the Holy Spirit points his finger at us and said, you crucified him. It was your rejection. It was your love for yourself and your unwillingness to bow to Jesus Christ. It was you just being true to yourself and acting and living the way you want. It was that that crucified Jesus. And if you're going to say that in this culture, it will take Holy Spirit boldness to communicate that. But it must be communicated. There must be the bad news before there is the good news because the person who is unaware of their sinfulness will be unaware of their need for Jesus. Lots of people are open to Jesus. If you say, hey man, you're a good person and and if you'll just pray this prayer, your good life will even get better. You'll have your best life now, right? If you just believe in Jesus, things will go well for you. Well, okay, who doesn't pray that prayer? Sure, I'm up for that. But if you say you are a sinner, you're responsible for the death of Jesus, and you are justifiably under God's judgment and will go to hell for eternity uh, if you don't repent and believe in Jesus Christ, and he is the only way? Well, folks aren't as willing oftentimes to hear that, but that is the message, and that's what God uses. It's that message. You see, 3,000 people saved instantaneously this day, not because everybody was told how wonderful they are, but they were told that the God of the universe who created you and does love you that that you rejected that Savior, Jesus Christ. So he talks about his life. He talks about his death. God gave him up to be dead, to, to die. Verse 24, he talks about his resurrection. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he says Jesus was raised from the dead as well. That's part of the story of the gospel that Jesus was raised. And it's actually the controversial part. In the book of Acts, you're going to find out as we read this through, um, that the message of the resurrection, that is a central um, sort of controversy. It's polarizing. They're announcing the resurrection really causes a lot of trouble because many of the Jews don't believe in it. Uh, in Acts 17, the Greeks don't believe in it. They say, you're crazy. Um, at, towards the end of the Bible, Paul is standing before a ruler and giving testimony, and the Roman ruler says to him, Paul, you are crazy, when he starts talking about the resurrection. So that is a chief controversy in the book. Also, that Jesus claims to be the Messiah, and that they're saying he is the Messiah, the king of the Jews. That's a controversy as well. So what happens here, you can uh, imagine Peter is quoting Old Testament writers, Joel and now David, because that's the Scripture, that's the Bible for his hearers is the Old Testament. So he says to, uh, he quotes David uh, in verses, what is that, 25 through 28. He quotes David, verse 27. David says in Psalm 16, verse 27, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Hades is the realm of the dead. And so though David wrote that and though he wrote it in the first person, uh, Peter says he wasn't talking about himself uh, verse 29, he says, I may say with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us today. He says, David wasn't talking about himself. When David said, I'm not subject, my body's not subject to decay, that uh, corruption, that you won't abandon me in the realm of the dead, he wasn't talking about himself because we could all walk over to David's grave. We know where he's buried. That's what he said. So he was talking about someone else. Who was he talking about? Verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That Jesus was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David was died and buried, but Jesus rose. And he explains in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So the 120 of us that are here telling you this message, we saw him alive. And probably there's other witnesses in the crowd that saw Jesus at a public um, appearance uh, sometime after his resurrection. So he tells about his life. God did signs through Jesus. Tells about his death. God gave him up and you crucified him. Tells about his resurrection. David told us long ago that one would come and would would be raised. And that was Jesus. And then he talks about his ascension, verse 33. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, So Jesus is taken up into heaven, and he rules and reigns at the right hand of God, and he's doing this. He's pouring out the Spirit. So the ministry of Jesus is his life, his death, his resurrection. He ascends and rules as Lord. He is both Lord and Christ. The word Christ means Messiah. So he is Lord, not Caesar. In their world, you had to say Caesar was Lord. The Christians would not say that. They said Jesus is Lord. And Uh, He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the one who's the king for his people. He is our king, is what he said. And we are witnesses of his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. It's really strong words when he says that you crucified Christ. He's now coming to the point and saying, This was the Lord, this was the Christ. And he's telling these Jewish people, You missed the Christ, you missed your Messiah. You didn't see him. You didn't identify him. You didn't receive him. You didn't follow him. You killed him. And that, of course, applies to all of us. They more than missed him. They crucified him. Now, here's what's really important about this. The Spirit comes. Let's just track again what's happened. The Spirit comes. um, Some some uh, amazing things happen with wind and fire and speaking in other languages. Then Peter stands up, explains it, and then he preaches. And what does he preach about? The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And here's the lesson. When the Spirit comes, he always points to Jesus. The Holy Spirit will emphasize Jesus. The Holy Spirit will stress Jesus. I, I read this um, illustration, which I think I've shared before. I think some other, uh, at least one of our other pastors, I I think has shared this as well. But it's a story about J.I. Packer, and he was walking to church one night, and he was preaching that night, and he was going to preach on uh, this verse, uh, he shall glorify me. Jesus says, the Spirit, when he comes, he will glorify me. And he said he walked around, uh, he turned the corner and saw the building at night, and it was lit up. There were these floodlights lighting the building, and as he saw that, he said, this is the perfect illustration of what I'm preaching about tonight. I'm going to tell people this, what I saw coming in, and this will explain the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says this, when floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the, flood, where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. Or think of it this way. It's as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing a light over our shoulder onto Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me. But it's always, look at him, see his glory, listen to him and hear his word, go to him and have life, get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. The Spirit points to Jesus. Now, I know he does some stuff in Acts 2 that would seem to draw attention to himself, but if you think about it, all it is is a prophetic sign of the, of the, that a new era has come, the gospel for all peoples, and as soon as Peter gets a mic, not actually, but as soon as he gets a mic and stands up, he immediately starts pointing to Jesus. This is how you know that the Spirit is among us, is among you working, is that there'll be more concentration on Jesus how do we know if the Holy Spirit's been poured out? How do we know if I've been touched by the Spirit? Could it be spiritual gifts? Well, yeah, there are spiritual gifts. We talked about that last week. Could it be something amazing and all filled Absolutely, we saw that last week. But the primary evidence will be you will love Jesus more. If the Spirit is working in you, you will find yourself transfixed on the Savior, on the cross, on the resurrection of Jesus' love for you. That's how you know the Spirit's at work. Sometimes people say, well, the Spirit's moving because some kind of crazy stuff's happening in the room. Well, that's not really how you know. the, The test is, I don't care what happened in the room. Do these people love Jesus? Are they singing about the gospel? Are they celebrating the work of Christ? Are they enamored with some phenomenon? The phenomenon point to Jesus because the Spirit points to Jesus. And that's how we know, because the Spirit is the floodlight that helps us to see. Well, the Spirit helped them to see, because look how they respond, verses 37 to 41. So it was the ministry of the Spirit, uh, the work of the Spirit, the work of Jesus, and now the response of the people. Now when they heard, verse 37, this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God call, calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It's amazing that they come, they're cut to the heart, it says in verse 37. This is what happens when the Spirit comes. He, he floodlights Jesus, and then we see our own sinfulness, and we're cut to the heart, because we see the great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. We see we have not done that. When we see we've rejected Christ rather than cherished him, loved him, served him, followed him, that we've not loved him, but we have... Um, resisted him for our own will. Then we are cut to the heart and we say, what must we do? We missed the Messiah. We rejected the Messiah. We turned on the Savior. What can we do? There's this desperation. And he says, well, this is what you do. You repent, which means turn. It means you're going this way and now you have a change of mind and you turn this way. So stop believing what you believed about Jesus, that he's just a good teacher or a good philosopher or a moral leader. No, he's God in the flesh. He's the Savior, the Lord, who died for your sins and rose again. So stop believing false things. Believe the truth about Jesus, that he's the only way. And turn from your sins, which is your evidence of rejecting him, and, and turn to him and ask him to be your Savior, your Lord. Repent. Obviously, believe in repentance. It's a repentant faith. Um, it's believing in him. And, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, so we saw that today, be, be ma- baptized. 3,000 of them baptized that day. There were cleansing pools um, out in front of the temple where people would go through ritual cleansings before some worship. So perhaps it was there where 3,000 were baptized. What a day that would have been. And he gives a promise. If you believe and repent, you will receive, verse 38, forgiveness for your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's the result, forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 are born again that day. The church goes from 120 to 3,120 after this single sermon. Let me say one thing about verse 38. Um, Some people read this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, uh, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And they teach that water baptism is necessary to receive the Holy Spirit. Meaning water baptism is necessary to be a Christian it's called baptismal regeneration. So some Christians teach that you have to be baptized to have the Holy Spirit, and you have to have the Holy Spirit to be a Christian. So they teach you can't be a Christian unless you're baptized. And I think on a surface reading of this scripture, if this was the only time baptism was mentioned, I get how you could see that and how that might make sense. I get that. But that doctrine is refuted multiple times in Acts alone. In the book of Acts, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, you could read later if you'd like, chapters 8, 9, and 10, there are examples of people believing in Jesus, receiving the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit comes upon them, and later they are water baptized. So in the narrative alone, it it disproves uh, that philosophy. And so many other places we're told as well, you know, if you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved, Romans 10 says. It doesn't require baptism. It doesn't require any action on our parts. It requires the work of Jesus that we receive. The gospel is what Jesus has done, not we have done, what we have done, including walking into the baptismal waters. Uh, it's what Jesus has done. Now, having said that, I would also say that baptism is not optional. Unbaptized Christian that's not in the New Testament. That's not, a, uh, that's, not, that's not an expectation or even a category in the New Testament, really. So, they always when they believe, they're baptized. So, it's not optional, meaning that we should be baptized as an act of obedience uh, to Christ and identifying with Him. So, we should do it, but it's not a requirement uh, for one to receive the Spirit as elsewhere in the Scripture says. So, they're cut to the heart and they Believe, and I think that is as we finish up. I think that is for, uh, I think that's for folks in the room today. I think there are those of us here today that maybe you have not trusted Christ as they have done here. You have you have simply thought you need to be a good person. You have thought, well, I need to be moral. I need to, or I'm not ready. I'm not good enough, or whatever it may be. And the passage here, notice what. Peter says to them, it's not about you. It's about what Jesus has done. And he will receive you if you will turn to him in faith and repentance. He says, come and believe. And you will receive, look at what he says, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins. What is better than having everything you've done wrong washed away and your conscience cleansed? That is the hope of every human. Every human wants a clean conscience, wants the forgiveness of sins, and that is why there's a thousand different ways to medicate our hearts and souls, because we know we're guilty, we know we're empty, we know we're broken, we know life is not the way it is supposed to be, and so what do we do? Rather than turn to Jesus... We turn to entertainment, we turn to success, we turn to achievement, we turn to alcohol, drugs and sex, we turn to greed and materialism, we turn to any escape possible. We're looking to escape and get away from the guilt in our own soul and you don't have to live that way. He says here, you can have all your sins forgiven by believing in Jesus. And you can have the Holy Spirit. This is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion is live a good life and God will accept you. If you're good enough, God will accept you. Christianity says you will never be good enough to be accepted. But God sent Jesus Christ to die in your place, to die for you. And if you will believe in him, not only will he forgive you, But he will come inside you and give you the power to obey what he commands you to do. It doesn't just say, here are the rules, good luck. If you live up to him, he'll accept you. He says, here's the rules, you've broken them all, but I'm going to accept you anyway because I accept my son and you're in him if you believe. And now I'm going to change you from the inside and give you the ability to obey my law, to follow me, to walk with me. This is the greatest promise the promise of this sermon is the greatest promise imaginable what what are you doing right now in life that's greater or more valuable or worth worth chasing More than knowing the God who created you and loves you, having all your sins wiped out so that your conscience is cleared, and having God Almighty live in you and empower you and direct you. What are you doing this afternoon that's more important than that, that's more valuable than that? What are you chasing that's going to bring anything to you better than that? Because this is for eternity, forever and ever and ever. So if you've never believed in Jesus, I'm praying that the light of shining on Jesus shows you your need today and that you turn to him in faith and belief and that you get baptized. There'll be some folks hanging around here at the end of the service. Come and talk to them and uh, tell them you want to know Jesus and you can do it by simply praying to him today. And if you're a Christian, let's just be real clear on what we need to see God's mission go through us. We need the word of God and we need the Holy Spirit and we need boldness to just open our mouths, to share our story, what God's done in our lives, to share what he has done. That's what we need. It's, it's not complica- complicated. I know there's a lot of tough questions. I know there's a lot of hard things to answer. I feel that way, I get that. But Peter didn't get up and try to explain and answer everybody, he just said, this is Jesus. Look at Jesus, what he's done for you. Believe in Jesus, you've rejected him, but he loves you and is reaching to you and he'll make all things new in your life. Not that we don't answer questions, but it's the simple message of Jesus that changes everything. It's not your persuasiveness. It's not your knowledge. Lord knows it's not your godliness or mine. It is the person of Jesus. And when the Spirit shows up, He gives us boldness to point to Him. And when we do, people's hearts are cut open and they come running to Him for new life. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.